Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time where we can gather as your people, uh, where we can uh, praise your name, where we can bring our prayers and requests to you, where we can enjoy the fellowship and company and community of uh, the people of God. Uh, But most importantly, we thank you that we can come and hear you speak as you promised to do through your spirit and your word. And we pray now that as we look at Daniel chapter 2, that we might see your power at work and that we might see the wisdom that you have displayed to all the world. And we pray that, um, yeah, we might not just see it, but that we might know it for ourselves as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know what sort of relationship you have with dreams. Um, uh, Dreams can be interesting things, can't they? Uh, Some dreams can be disturbing. Uh, They can be really troubling. Uh, One of the things that used to happen in my family growing up, if if we're ever about to go on a holiday or a a long journey, uh, you could guarantee that in the week leading up to that journey, my mum would start having dreams, and there would be dreams of our impending doom. Uh, She would have dreams about plane crashes, boats sinking, getting lost, abandoned, murdered, kidnapped, something. These were the recurring dreams that my mum would have uh, every time we prepared to go away. Uh, none of those things ever happen, you'll be, you'll be thankful to know. Uh, dreams can also be really vivid. Uh, I have a friend once, well I have a friend, he's still my friend. Um, there was one time where his wife woke up grumpy with him and remained grumpy with him for most of that next day because of something that he did in her dream. Uh, not in real life, something that she had a dream about that he did. Uh, it was so vivid that the emotions that it generated, they continued to last through the morning. Uh, Today in Daniel chapter 2, we're looking at a dream that lasted well beyond the morning. Uh, It was disturbing and it was vivid. Uh, We're continuing on in the book of of Daniel and uh, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, he's having these recurring dreams. Dreams that are so disturbing for him that he's lost the ability to sleep. Uh, Now, if you are here last week, you would have met uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Uh, He's the supreme ruler of the known world. Uh, He's the guy whose army had marched into Jerusalem and carried off the people of God into exile, into Babylon. And uh, last week, you would have met one of these Jews, one of these uh, exiles, was a talented young man named Daniel. Uh, Daniel was plucked out of the gifted and talented class in Jerusalem, and now he was in Babylon undergoing his new education in the Babylonian way of doing things. Uh, now, the story of chapter 2 was quite long, and uh, uh, Tess did a great job at reading it, but it's, it's, it's a great story. It's actually quite simple, though. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar dreams, Daniel gets involved, Daniel explains the dream, and then Daniel gets promoted. That's simply what happens. But from that simple story, we learn profound truths about God's wisdom and God's power. And for Daniel and his friends, as they sit there in Babylon, it's going to answer some really important questions that they would have been having. They would have been sitting there in Babylon and they they would have been wondering, is God's wisdom still wise in Babylon? Is God still powerful when Jerusalem, his holy city, lies in ruins? And these are relevant questions for us too. As we live in this world, but not of this world, as you would have heard last week, as we live as citizens of heaven... Is God's wisdom still wise in Wellington? Is God's wisdom still wise in the 21st century? And also, is God still powerful? Is God still powerful? If you look by almost any human metric at the church, it looks like the church is at its weakest. Number of people who go, number of assets the church owns, 
the, the level of influence the church has in wider society, it looks like it's at its weakest. Is God still powerful? These are important questions for us as well. But let's begin with the story. Uh, the story begins with King Nebuchadnezzar and his dreams. Take a look there at verse 1. In verse 1, uh, in, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. You see, the great king is suffering these recurring nightmares, kind of night after sleepless night. He's getting more and more weary and he's more and more troubled by these dreams. And after a while, panic begins to set in. He needs some sleep. He hasn't got any melatonin on hand. He needs some answers. Uh, and so to get to the bottom of it, he calls in the experts to explain the dreams to him. Verse 2. Verse 2. The king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. And now these guys who come marching into the royal court, they're like the royal advisors. They're like the, the government-appointed experts in the area of what's going on uh, in the world of dreams and other things. Uh, they were employed by the king to explain the actions of the gods. Uh, see, uh, Babylonians thought that if you could work out what was going on in the world of the gods, then you would understand the events of the physical world. As in, if the, if the gods were fighting, then that might manifest itself in some way in the physical world. If the gods were kind of doing something else, then that might manifest some other thing. And so they had a variety of methods that they used to use to work out what the gods might be up to. They had kind of libraries of books that, that, that kind of documented everything from like abnormal births to uh, events in the sky to the, the shape of, of animal intestines, uh, world events, dreams, all sorts of things. They had them all documented in their books. And all this information, information was collated and analysed as an attempt to work out what the gods were doing or what the gods might be saying. And so these advisors come before the king uh, and they come before the king to work their magic. But he throws this curveball at them. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5, if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut to pieces and your houses turn to rubble. Now, the sleepless king, he might be the ruling superpower. Uh, he might be the supreme leader. But I think it's fair to say he's being a little bit unreasonable here, don't you think? Maybe it's the lack of sleep. But the usual protocol would be that the, the dreamer would share the contents of their dream. Uh, and then the experts go, okay, now I know what you, the contents are. They would they, they, they'd kind of take in the contents. They would go away, consult their books. They'd look at the sheep guts. They'd look up at the stars. And then they'd come back with an explanation. That's usually how it was done. But the king, for some reason, is sceptical. And, and to verify the authenticity of the interpretation, if they really can do what they say they can do, he says, tell me the dream first before you tell me its meaning. And then to show that he's not mucking around, he tops it off with a death threat. Death and destruction. No pressure, guys. Uh, as you can probably expect the, the, the wise men, the sorcerer, the astrologers, uh, they're freaking out and they grab for mercy. They, they, they plead for mercy in verse 10. They concede their limitations. Verse 10, the astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Verse 11, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. See, the wise men, they come clean with the king. They don't have access to what it is that he demands. 
Only the gods can reveal it, and the gods don't live around here, they say. Now, even though they're pleading for mercy, they get none. It's obviously the wrong thing to say to a sleep-deprived, agitated, all-powerful dictator. That was no empty threat. Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and he issues the decree for all the wise men of the empire to be killed. And so word goes out, uh, execution squads are mobilised and all the wise men are are rounded up to be slaughtered and you can imagine Daniel and his pals, they're kicking back in the University of Babylon and there's a knock at the door. They've come to get them as well. Have a look at verse 13. Men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Daniel gets involved. He he doesn't really have a choice here. He's, 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 He's pulled in to the king's drama. Have a look at verse 14 and how he responds. Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. You see, where the wise men who had come before the great king Nebuchadnezzar, they had been flustered and they fumbled about and they admitted their weakness, Daniel's response is cool. He's calm and collected. He speaks with wisdom and tact, it says. And because of that, he secures more time from the king. And as, as, as Daniel has more time, what does he do? Well, he reaches for one of his lifelines. He phones a friend. He enlists his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he asks them to do something for him. Verse 18. He asks them, verse 18, to plead for mercy, not from the king, Plead for mercy from the God of heaven. It's the God of heaven who will get them out of this situation. He asked them to pray. Now, just as an aside, how often in a time of crisis, when your back is up against the wall, when your chips are down, when everything is going the wrong way, how often in a time of crisis is prayer your first response? If you're anything like me, uh, when the going gets tough, I just kind of, the blinkers go on, like I just get cracking at solving the problem or working out a solution, and forget to pray, or forget to ask others to pray, to share that moment of weakness with someone else so they can pray for you. You see, Daniel's God here, the God of heaven, he proves to be more reliable than the Babylonian gods. Have a look there in verse 19. What does he do? Verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. You see, the dream gets explained. Uh, Now that Daniel is armed with both the contents and the explanation of the dream, he can approach the king. And for us as readers, this is actually our first glimpse of what the contents of the dream actually are. So what is the dream? What does the king dream about? Well, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about an enormous statue, dazzling and awesome in appearance. It's a statue that's made of gold and of silver and of bronze and then a mix of iron and clay. And it's a great statue that is, in de- that is in destroyed by a tiny rock. And then that rock, it grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. But what does it actually mean? Well, Daniel offers the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head. He is the one who's been given by God dominion and power and might and glory. And you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar feeling a little bit better about that. Maybe he's going to sleep better tonight knowing that he's the golden head, that he's the undisputed ruler of the known world for this time. But then after him, things go downhill. There are these other kingdoms, 
none of which ever quite reached the same splendour and glory. Now, over the centuries, lots of people have speculated about who these kingdoms might be. Is one of them the Greeks or the Romans or maybe the Soviet Union or something interesting like that? Uh, But Daniel doesn't seem to be bothered by these details. He gives no explanation. For Daniel, the details of who these kingdoms are, it's just not actually important. Because here is what is important. Here's what Daniel does say. He says it's all downhill until God sets up his own kingdom. And this kingdom will be a kingdom that, what, verse 44? Verse 44, in the, the times, sorry, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That is the whole point of the dream. Even if King Nebuchadnezzar might sleep a little better that night knowing that he's the gold head, there's actually a sting in the tail. Even his great kingdom will come to an end because there is a kingdom coming that will be established by God and it will crush all the others and it will endure forever. Now this is quite the revelation to King Nebuchadnezzar and so he gets religious Uh, He's heard the dream, he's heard the interpretation, it's kind of met his requirements for authenticity, he believes it, and so he moves into action. And his response is actually quite dramatic. When you think about it, he is the great king, he is the supreme ruler, he is the most powerful human on earth at the time, and he throws himself on the ground before Daniel, a Jewish slave. And then he pays homage to Daniel's God. Verse 47, the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, he all of a sudden gets religious. Now, before we get too carried away and we think that kind of Nebuchadnezzar has suddenly become like a God-fearer, that he's kind of converted to Daniel's monotheistic Judaism, um, are we going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven kind of questions? No, as a Babylonian... Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a whole suite of gods. Uh, And all he's doing is King Nebuchadnezzar, he's just making room on his shelf for one more god. He's just found another god to add to his collection. And he's pretty impressed with this new god. He's happy to say that this new god might be the top god, the god of gods. Uh, See, King Nebuchadnezzar at heart, he's he's a Babylonian. And he believes what the Babylonians do of that day. And the Babylonians, they kind of have a, Aaron will like this, they have a Pokemon view of spirituality. Kind of, you've got to collect them all. Every god they come across, they want to bring it into their collection. Uh, and there's no real conviction as to, uh, as to believing in any particular one or any particular devotion. It's just a catalogue of useful connections. So they might be able to tap into them when they need to. So they might be able to work out which god is behind any particular thing so they know, they know the right rope to pull or bell to ring to get that god on their side. But the upshot of all of this is that Daniel gets promoted. Daniel gets promoted, he's lavished with gifts, he's placed in a high position. Uh, the king makes him rule over all the wise men in the province of Babylon. And because Daniel knows this reprieve came from God, and not from himself, he makes sure his friends are looked after as well, the ones who had prayed for him. Now this is a cracking story, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar dreams, Daniel gets involved, Daniel explains the dream, Nebuchadnezzar gets religious, 
Daniel gets promoted. It's a great story, but what does it mean? What difference might it make for us? I think there are two things that God has to say to us through this story. The first is that God's wisdom is available. And the second is that God's power is inescapable. God's wisdom is available, his power is inescapable, and because of those two things, it makes sense to put our trust in him. Now see, the Babylonian king, he had assembled his all-star team of wise men. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, they were the best of the best. But all of their combined wisdom, it failed the king. You see, for them, for all of their learning, for all of their study, for all of their books, for all their staring at the stars, true wisdom was inaccessible. And what they say in verse 11 is telling, isn't it? What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it except the gods, and they do not live among human beings. These wise men, they could not access true wisdom through their gods. They could not access true wisdom through their own working out. Deep knowledge of the world and its future was beyond them. They claimed to be wise, but when the true test came, when their lives were on the line, they failed. But Daniel, on the other hand, his God could offer that wisdom. His God's wisdom was accessible. It was available. And it wasn't because of any fancy party trick that Daniel could pull. It wasn't because Daniel himself was wise or smarter than anyone else. No, why was it? It was because Daniel's God is the revealer of wisdom. Daniel prayed for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom. Look there in verse 21 and 22. Verse 21, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. You see, wisdom is the personal property of Daniel's God. And this is actually a really important theme that appears all the way through the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. It's that God is the source of wisdom, and he wants to share his wisdom with us. He wants us to be in the know about how we should live in the world that he has made. He wants us to be wise about what life is all about, how to do it best, how to live right in the world that he has made, in the rhythms that he has set in it. He wants us to understand his plans and his purposes for his world. And here we see in Daniel chapter 2 that God is wise even in Babylon. God is still wise even in Babylon because the wisdom of God is not limited. It's not limited to a time or a place. It's not something that is only relevant for some people. It's not something that is relative, something that might be uh, kind of true for you but not true for me. No, God's wisdom is universal. It is for all people in all places, even when the people of God might feel far from home, like Daniel and his friends did in Babylon. The other thing we see here is that God's wisdom can't be found at the bottom of a test tube. We can't work it out all on our own. You can get all the smartest people in the room. You can get all the superest computers together working away. You can get all the philosophers sitting there thinking their big thoughts, but they will never in a million years discern the wisdom of God. It is revealed by God. 
And the book of Proverbs tells us that God's wisdom, it, it begins with the fear of the Lord. That is, real wisdom comes to those who come to God, acknowledging that he is God and that they are not. Wisdom is available and accessible. It is revealed to those who are willing to submit themselves to God, who put their trust in him. Which is why we shouldn't be surprised if our friends and neighbours, if our family, if our lecturers, our bosses, they don't get it. We shouldn't be surprised when they look at our choices, at the beliefs that we might hold, at the lives we live, how we choose to use our time and our money and our bodies. And they look at that and they go, that's dumb, I don't get it. Why are you doing it that way? Sleep around, why wouldn't you try before you buy? Spend up big. Why not enjoy the money you've got? Stay back late. Make the most of this career opportunity. Go as far as you can. You've got time for those other things later. The choices we'll make if we follow God's wisdom will seem like foolishness to those around us. A few years ago, my brother-in-law, he's a doctor living in Tasmania, you don't know what Tasmania is like. It's like New Zealand, but with snakes. Um, anyway, he took his wife and his three young children from the comforts of life in Australia uh, to live and work in South Sudan. Uh, they left good schools. They left a, a secure job as a doctor in a hospital, a comfortable home in a stable country. And they left that place of comfort and security to homeschool their kids, uh, to do a job in a new hospital, in a fragile mission community that was entirely dependent upon outside support. Uh, they moved into a hut in an orphanage in a country that teeters on the edge of civil war. In the eyes of the world around them, it was utter foolishness. Why would you do such a thing? Why would you do such a thing to your children? Why would you give up a comfortable, well-paying job in the first world and move to the third world? That was foolishness. But when you have access to God's wisdom, when you can see what God is doing in the world, when you realise that God doesn't care about our creature comforts, but cares about the lives and souls of his beloved creatures, when you realise this, of course you would be happy to give up your lifestyle to share the love of Jesus with others. Because the second thing we see in Daniel chapter 2, God's power is inescapable. God is really the one who is at work in this world. As we zoom in on the details of Daniel, of Daniel chapter 2, if you look at the fine details, we can see God's fingerprints are all over the story, aren't they? God's the one who gives the king dreams. God's the one who withholds knowledge from the Babylonian wise men. God is the one who unexpectedly grants this stay of execution for Daniel and his friends. God gives Daniel wisdom and he, Daniel reveals the dream and the interpretation. God is working through it all. God has his hand firmly on the wheel. He is across all the details of what is going on here. But as we zoom out, we also see that God's, we see God's power on the big scale. God is the one who stands over the rise and falls of kingdoms and empires. And just as Daniel interpreted the dream for the king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, just as Daniel interpreted the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, he did not last. And the king who came after him, he did not last. 
and no kingdom that has ever come has ever lasted. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, currently the struggle between China and the United States for global dominance and influence, none of it will last. Because kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God's power is inescapable. Because God is building a kingdom that will endure. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. You see, Daniel glimpses a day when the inescapable power of God will be seen in a kingdom that will never end. And so Daniel and his friends, they didn't need to fear the kingdom of the Babylonians or whoever else came after them. Nor should we fear the kingdoms of this world or the rulers of our time and our culture when they stand opposed to God and his purposes. Because he is establishing a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that will endure forever. Now Daniel chapter 2, it's, a, it's all about the wisdom and power of God, both of which we see in the Bible find their climax in the Lord Jesus. There was that telling uh, verse there from those Babylonian wise men. I wonder if your ears pricked up when you heard it read. Uh, when they said, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. The gods don't live among men, they thought. Well, Daniel's God, the God of the Bible, he has lived among men. Jesus made his dwelling among us, and he made known to us the wisdom and power of God. Not only did he make it known, he made it available to us. And he invites all of us to come and to hear and to learn and to follow. Uh, the Apostle Paul summed it up like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, Paul sums it up by pointing us to Jesus. Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God. A spectacle that for some will look like foolishness, for some it will look like failure, but ultimately it displays God's wisdom and God's power. A glorious exchange where Jesus trades his innocent life for our foolishness and our failures. Christ crucified the wisdom and power of God. Where Jesus lays down his life for sin, defeating sin, death and the devil. And so are you wise? Do you come to God as the giver of wisdom, as the creator and sustainer of all things? Do you come to him with fear and trembling, treating him as God, knowing that you are not? Do you come to him and seek his plans and purposes for your life? Do you know what it means for Christ to be crucified for you? That he displayed his wisdom and power as he laid down his life for you. So you might be forgiven. So that you might be made righteous. So you might be part of his eternal kingdom that will have no end. It's our prayer and purpose here on City on Hill that everyone who walks through these doors, everyone who you work alongside, everyone who lives next door, everyone you're related to, everyone, it's our prayer that they know this wisdom and power of God that we see in Jesus. 
And so I invite you, do you know the wisdom and power of God that has been displayed in Jesus? If you don't, I invite you to get to know him. Get to know the God, the, get to know the God who does walk among men, who has laid down his life for you, displaying his wisdom and power in all eternity. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, praise be to your name forever and ever, for wisdom and power are yours. And Lord, we thank you that the wisdom and power that you have displayed we see in Christ crucified. And Lord, we pray that we might reveal your wisdom, that we might live out your wisdom, that we might know your power in all of life. And we pray this for your praise and glory. Amen.